0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. There have been two big themes in this series as we address the America of the pandemic. The first is that America doesn't seem to work anymore. Everybody we've talked to, from George Packer to Am Applebaum, suggests a a structural crisis in the state, in, in culture, To put it politely, it seems to many people, at least, that America is fucked. Uh, The second theme is the relationship between America and Silicon Valley and the increasing power of big tech and Silicon Valley companies over America and the way in which uh, Silicon Valley is reshaping the American economy and culture. Uh, Margaret O'Meara is Silicon Valley's preeminent historian and uh her book the code silicon valley and the remaking of america came out last year it's a really really good book uh, it's just coming out in paperback so she brings together these two themes uh margaret has a and i will i'll I'll start you off with an easy question has silicon valley ruined america
1: hmm. um no but I think um, Silicon Valley and America are two intertwined stories. We sometimes like to think and Silicon Valley likes to present itself as a place apart, place of quirky outcasts off in the corner of the United States doing things differently, thinking differently. And actually, what I set out to show in the book is that this extraordinary story is an extraordinary American story. It is the product of modern America. And so you really can't pull the two apart or say one, you know, one influenced the other, they are two intertwined narratives.
0: And what I really like about your book is you and, and historians, of course, are very good at avoiding this. You you don't fall into the, the mythology of American capitalism, um, which argues that everything is done in spite against government. You recognize that we never would have had Silicon Valley Without the U.S. government, without their investment and support for technology,
1: yeah, it, the government has been part of the Silicon Valley story all along. Even though um, it is something that the Silicon Valley mythos of the you know free enterprise capitalist cowboy running into riding into the setting sun kind of leaves out, but it's it's a very distinctively American way of being, and I think that's another important an element of the story it isn't just that there were big government foundations in the form of cold war spending in the 1950s and 60s and and subsequent to that um, research spending higher education spending tax expenditures special sort of regulatory arrangements given to the the computer software and hardware and internet industries um, but also it was done in a way that was that allowed a great deal of private sector, entrepreneurship and innovation to blossom on top of it. I, the analogy I like to use is a sandbox. So you have the federal government effectively building the wooden box that contains the sand and putting the sand in there and then allowing academics and business people and techies and others to get into the sandbox and throw sand at each other and build, build sandcastles and, and do, their, do what they want. Kind of a great deal of flexibility to try and fail and try again.
0: So, in a sense, what you're arguing, to put it in Silicon Valley terms, is that the government's providing the operating system.
1: Yeah, it is, but it's uh, but it is an operating system designed with um, with a lot of input from the user. Um, that, and I think there's a really interesting contrast here between, if we look globally. So we look at a lot of other countries around the, nations around the world that have um, embarked on big R&D programs, in many cases, kind of have very self-consciously said, we're going to build another Silicon Valley, you know, built research parks and all sorts of funneled lots of money towards um, these sorts of initiatives. And uh, and they've been much more kind of command and control, top-down efforts and have not um, created the kind of, um hurly-burly startup culture that the US has specialized in um and and I think that the privatized nature of public spending which really starts you know with the military industrial complex itself of the Eisenhower era and beyond which is uh, the US spending an immense amount of money on military research and development, on the space program, which of course was very much, a you know, the race to the moon was a Cold War project too, right? It was beating the Russians to, to space was, was the impetus for all the spending. But flooding the money with all, flooding the system with money, but flooding it and directing it towards private contractors, private companies who were defense contractors and others, public and private universities, and decentralizing and privatizing that spending in a way that made many of the people who were part of this technology ecosystem, unaware of the extent to which government money was uh, underlying everything they were doing.
0: Like Fred Turner as well, another very good historian, mm-hmm. uh, you link the history of Silicon Valley, the particularly the, the two Steves and the founding of Apple, the, the modern Silicon Valley, with the counterculture, but also with some of the illusions and delusions of the counterculture. How central in your mind is the counterculture? In the history of silicon valley
1: well i think i think the 1960s and i'd say the vietnam era of which the counterculture was a part is extremely important and the politics of the 60s and 70s not just california what's going on in california that's important what's going on in the bay area around berkeley and stanford um culturally and politically that's important but also nationally think about how American politics changes during that period. You have disillusionment across the political spectrum with government institutions and leaders. The the leaders who you know betrayed, uh, who you know lied to the American public about the war in Vietnam. Um, and then you have you know followed on by Watergate. You kind of come out of yeah. You know, by the time you get to the mid 70s, from the left to the right, you have plenty of people who are. Um, have lost faith in um, American leadership, and then you also have, you know, part of what the culture counterculture was about was about turning away from the establishment, from big institutions, big government, big business, from these large entities that were in the minds of the '60s generation responsible for for war, for environmental destruction, for um, for all sorts of societal ills, and so the the group of people who are from this this movement of of people who are really engaged in politics, also engaged in technology in the late 60s and early 70s, um, that that eventually gives birth to the personal computer industry. The the personal computer itself was seen as a tool of social change, liberation of individual empowerment. Um, and it, it it was marketed as such. If you go to, you know, that was part of the genius of Apple. And one reason Apple became the company that soared above all the others that were emerging in garages around the Bay Area at the same time, um, in part because of this very compelling uh, marketing and branding that presented the Apple II and then later iterations of the Apple, including the Macintosh, as these tools for creativity and for liberation and for communication without gatekeepers and out a kind of anti-establishment corporate branding that was tremendously effective.
0: Not only tremendously effective, but also not entirely honest. Uh, Your book does a wonderful job articulating that narrative of liberation and the unleashing of creativity. But in parallel with that, it's a, a culture and a business environment which discriminates against women, discriminates against minorities. It's very much a masculine culture. Um, Was that coincidental or was that somehow engraved into the very, the soul, the idea of Silicon Valley?
1: Well, it certainly is deeply engraved and ingrained. And I think that's one reason that the diversity needle, so to speak, has been so hard to budge um, over time, that there isn't a single kind of solution to, to, to the problem of, gender um, and racial um, imbalances in Silicon Valley, but it goes way back. Um, it was, it is, it is partially has to do with, yeah, look, the, the, the industry presents itself as, as countercultural and different, but really the secret of success for whether you're Apple or Google or any other company has to do with pretty conventional business practices. And in many ways, Silicon Valley, and particularly those who are the money men in Silicon Valley, the investors, the venture capitalists, are... are are far more conservative than they would like to present themselves, right? They present themselves as kind of engaged in risky business, willing to take risks on untested entrepreneurs. But in many ways, uh, venture capital investing kind of follows a pattern. You're looking for, you know, people who have a certain, you know, certain set of credentials, have a certain, are, are networked into the system. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that the Valley itself was a very, very small closely interconnected community for a very long time and, and that really kind of continues to this day it's this little this assortment of of suburbs in the san francisco peninsula where there are not that many places to you know go to get coffee or get a bagel or go out to eat you bump into people all the time you have um, people who have decades-long friendships as well as professional relationships and that actually has been part of its secret that people hire people they know they invest in people they know they invest in people who come out of certain programs at Stanford or maybe MIT and 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 they kind of keep the pool and, and this has a this both is is a secret to Silicon Valley success. It also is its Achilles heel. It also keeps the keeps the people with power from looking wider, looking outward to other people who might have fresh innovative ideas. It keeps the definition of who's an innovator narrow. And when it's coupled with a kind of dissociation from social politics, you know, one of the things that the Vietnam generation technologists who were behind the personal computer industry, you know, they brought, they had the ideals of the 60s in terms of wanting to change the world and make the world a better place and make it more connected. They kind of stripped all the social politics out. They felt that if we have a computer and we have computers on every desk and we're communicating to one another, that all of these differences between us of nation, of gender, of race will just, Evaporate. The technology will solve it. And of course, when this is a community that's mostly made up of upper middle class white men, they perhaps missed the the difficulties and challenges <laughs> that a, that a, a technology cannot overcome these social problems. And we're really seeing this all um, come come into full bloom now.
0: Yeah, George Packer wrote uh, brilliantly, I think, about that in 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 his book about. The products of Silicon Valley reflecting the values of these, as you say, upper class white men who, who went to the top colleges, sometimes like Zuckerberg, dropped out, but nonetheless had access to educations at Harvard. And as you're suggesting, uh, Silicon Valley, which is driven by its venture capital community and its access to capital, naturally invests in people like white young men like zuckerberg or travis kalalnik who reflect the values of the investors is that fair
1: it's yes it's remarkably um it's it's a markedly different difficult pattern to to dislodge and a lot of the investors keep in mind are former operators right they're people who were in Mm -hmm. companies who had a successful exit and then they go on and they become the investors and the mentors. I mean, the, the secret of high tech venture capital isn't just the money, it's the mentorship It's shaping these companies and their values. Someone like Mark Zuckerberg has, is, a you know, 19 when he starts his company and he is taking his cues from the investors and the mentors around him who are from the earlier generations of Silicon Valley wealth and success. People like Mark Andreessen, who great, made great, his first great success At Netscape, you know, when he was almost as young as Mark Zuckerberg in the 1990s, people um, from the semiconductor industry of an earlier generation who then go on to become venture capitalists. So there's a there's this interesting, you know, the Valley, the technology itself has changed. The Valley used to be in the business of making hardware, microchips, computers. Now it's a software business. The Valley also used to be a kind of, you know, they make office machines, right? It was it was a kind of it was an important industry, but it was a sector. It wasn't something that kind of was was a set of platforms that are inescapable, that are part of everyday life in so many dimensions now. And and the business culture is still a hangover from that earlier era when the the products and their impact was quite frankly more limited than it is now.
0: To be fair though, there are some mentors in Silicon Valley, some venture capitalists who are willing to acknowledge making mistakes. Uh, You mentioned Mark Zuckerberg uh, being a 19-year-old entrepreneur when he was a very young man. One of his principal mentors was uh, my friend uh, Roger McNamee, um, Mm -hmm. who invested in Facebook early and and led them. And, And McNamee is, of course, Come out recently mm-hmm. and been perhaps one of the leaders of 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 of, of the uh, the Facebook uh, backlash, the critique of mm-hmm. Facebook. Uh, without wishing to spend too much time on McNamee, I need to get him actually on the show. He's written an important book also on uh, on on Facebook. How atypical is Roger? What does he tell us and his model tell us about the rest of Silicon Valley?
1: Mm. Well, he is atypical, in that I think he probably lost a lot of friends in his criticism of of Facebook and in the very and I would say the very public criticism of Facebook. Um, you know, you don't have many people. I think that's one reason why he stands out. You don't have many people um, who have money and power breaking ranks um, in that way, in a public way, and and I think that that's I, I kind of I think it's really interesting, and I think important to recognize that. Again, it's a reflection of the very the tightness of the community and the relationships within it, and also a belief that's really hard to shake. It's been it's been under siege for the last few years, but very hard to shake of the general rightness and goodness of what they're up to. That that there's a lot of heat and noise, heat and light, um, but really, if you just keep your eye on the ball and stick with you know. Building a great product and building a great company, and you're surrounded by good people. That that it's the rest of the world will come around and understand what we're doing. And I think that's been the reflexive stance of a lot of people, um, particularly the leaders of these very large companies in Silicon Valley. And quite frankly, it's been reinforced by the stock market. You know, where investors who you know stock prices keep on going up, even as the tech lash has continued to lash. Um, I mean, you do have, you know, where I did talk to a lot of people in the course of putting this book together who were, were able to be more reflective. And I think particularly people who were in the Valley in an earlier era, we all get, always get nostalgic about, about our, you know, our our past and our motivations, right? Everyone becomes more noble. Their younger selves always become more noble in retrospect. But I talked to a lot of very senior, meaning retired in their 80s and 90s venture capitalists, in the course of writing this book, because they had time to sit and have lunch with me, for one thing, and they were much more reflective and kind of regretful of how the valley had seemed to them kind of gotten out of control that it wasn't the valley they once knew. Um, you know, I think again, memory can be subjective, but there is a it's only those who are kind of looking backward who have, um have the time to really appreciate it, the people who are in these companies in the middle of the storm, in a way, it reminds me a lot before I worked as a historian, I worked in politics, it reminds me a bit of kind of the West Wing of the White House, you have this bubble of power, that it's very hard to kind of understand what the quote, unquote, real world is going through, when you're in this extraordinary circumstance. And I feel there's a little bit of that in the highest echelons of Silicon Valley right now.
0: Margaret, one of the things I've been struck by, uh, and it's not difficult to be struck by the hypocrisies of Silicon Valley, is in in the summer of 2020, in the midst of Black Lives Matter, Silicon Valley has suddenly discovered that it has a race problem, that there aren't Mm -hmm. African-American venture capitalists or senior execs. It's a place which is unfriendly, perhaps even hostile, maybe even racist towards minorities. Um, and suddenly all the VCs are saying, oh, we need funds dedicated to African-Americans. We need, we need more African-American execs, uh, senior execs. Someone. I, I read a piece suggesting, I don't know which companies, but a couple of large companies don't have any African-Americans. I know this is, again, an area that you're quite familiar with in your acknowledgments to your book. You, you cite uh, Alison Hobbs, a very distinguished professor of African-American history at Stanford, Is it just, again, more hypocrisy? Because it must have been obvious a year ago or five years ago that Silicon Valley had a race problem. There just aren't any blacks. So why are these suddenly all these people saying, oh, this is shocking, this is terrible?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's corporate America's problem, too. But it is particularly glaring in Silicon Valley. Where it, a set of companies that are purported to again be different and better than the rest, right? We're, we're we're not evil. We're we're a better, kinder, gentler kind of capitalism. And I think this is one consequence of Silicon Valley of a number of things. Look, Silicon Valley is built on space that is racially segregated. It is a set of all white suburbs that um, that marginal pushed non-white, black, and brown people off. Out of the, the, you know, this off their the, the main parts of Palo Alto and Menlo Park and all, and, uh, and 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 segregated them to to neighborhoods that are now being themselves gentrified and encroached upon by by growing tech campuses. Facebook's, for example, is is right about a traditionally African American community of East Palo Alto. Um, so you have a, a sort of a racially segregated space that has that segregation, that segregationist history has not been acknowledged or recognized. That there was active exclusion that built those suburbs as any other suburb in America during the '40s and '50s and beyond. And I think, but I think in the case of the tech industry, it's real kind of insistence. This is part of the tech mythos of of an insistence on meritocracy that. And 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 by meaning that kind of we're a place that we just care. We don't care where you come from. We just care that you can write great code or you can build a beautiful motherboard. And it reflects a certain certainly there was a, you know, the, the founding generation of the electronics industry in Silicon Valley was made up of young white men because um, it was the 50s but they were not rich, by and large, rich guys. If you had money, family money or connections, or you went to a prep school or an Ivy League school, you stayed East. You went and worked for your father's bank or a fortune 50 company in middle management. The people who came out were smart engineers who were from kind of middle-class, solidly middle-class families in the Midwest and Texas, who were scholarship kids, who were, you know, didn't have a lot, of other didn't have their own wealth that they were bringing to the party they later some of them later became very wealthy but they didn't start that way but i think that baked in this idea that if you're a good engineer we don't care where you come from we don't care about what your connections are what it is overlooked is that that the field of engineering for one was actively discriminatory against women and people of color for 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 almost forever and you know in the early 60s when the founding generation is getting its starting its first companies, engineering programs were, you know, could, could, could exclude women from taking classes, much less African Americans and, um, and other sort of traditionally underrepresented minorities. So, and and I think the Valley also points to its considerable immigrant population, which is a very important part of the Valley's success. Many of whom come from South and East Asia, Indians and Chinese are really, really important. Part of the story is saying, look, we aren't racist. Well, that's, that's different. <laughs> and, you know, saying someone who's a sort of highly educated Indian engineer with a string of illustrious degrees to his name is not your, that's not the same as, you know, hiring, you know, actively working to rectify racial imbalances and hiring African Americans and others.
0: Margaret, let's fast forward to 2020. There are people, and, and I talked about this with Ian Bogost a couple of weeks ago on the show, there are people who believe that there is now a generational shift in Silicon Valley, that that the young tech workers are rebelling in Facebook and Google against the what they at least perceive to be the injustices of their companies is there a generational shift in 2020 do you think uh, do we have a, a new breed of of techies who are who are going to break with the past and actually try to remake america mm-hmm. in a healthy way rather than just an exploitative one
1: i think i am seeing a, a shift that is Generational and geographic, and diverse on many other metrics. Um, I think it's not incidental that many of the people who have been at the forefront of worker activism within these companies are women, um, LGBTQ, um, other underrepresented groups um, in this, still, what's still a very overwhelmingly white and male engineering and other workforce um but i do see i'm really this is you know in my i often find myself as a historian being like well we've seen this before right and I'm, I'm always the one being like we've been here before this is not this is something that is new so white collar activism within the tech industry is not something that i that we have seen before certainly not in the kind of employed um white the, the employees we've seen contractors um and silicon valley has always used a contracting workforce of people who aren't quite, don't have all the perks and benefits and stock options that regular employees do. But now you're seeing some of the more privileged in tech who are using that privilege to agitate for change. And that is different. Why I say it's a geographic shift, I think this is also a consequence of these companies being truly global. They're being multi, they're multinational. They have offices all around the world. They aren't just in Northern California or Seattle anymore. So think about the Google walkout 18 months ago. That was taking place in New York, in all over Europe, in Google offices around the world. And it really kind of underscored how much you know tech is no longer just Silicon Valley is no just no longer a place in California. It's a global network. And I think that presents challenges to the kind of historic way that Silicon Valley's leadership has approached labor management relations, which has been we don't want unions, we give people stock options, we make them feel like family and we make them loyal in other ways, or we're all part of one big team. Um, you know we are th- these companies have become too big, they've become too all-encompassing, and they're operating in so many sectors now that criticism is emanating, you know there are a lot of different ways in which workers within this company as these companies as well as critics without, are p- pointing out their flaws.
0: Margaret, finally, everyone should read your, it's not your new book, but it's the paperback version of The Code, Silicon Valley, and the remaking of America, I think, as a single volume, uh, perhaps with Leslie Berlin's book as well. It's, it's the most authoritative history of, of Silicon Valley. Uh, what else should people be reading during the lockdown? Doesn't have to be tech, doesn't even have to be history. What are you reading at the moment?
1: Well, right now, well, in the summertime, I read is is when I really delve into fiction and catch up on all the the fiction I haven't been reading. So I am in the middle of reading *The Everlasting* by um, Katie Simpson Smith, which is about Rome, and it's fantastic. Um, but I do read a lot of of history, past and present. And one book that I've picked up in the in these COVID times um, that I return to. Um, is a book that's been around for quite some time. It's called The Cholera, cholera Years by Charles R- Rosenberg, who is a historian of medicine, um, and uh, which is about cholera epidemics in 18th and 19th century American cities and how, how, we, how we dealt with pandemics in the past. But um, I actually have uh, been thinking a lot about, you know, reading lists and ways to, to um, you know, I think there's so, there's so much really good work historical work, particularly not only on pandemic, um, the season of pandemic, but these seasons of, of protest um, that help us understand the underpinnings of, um, of racial inequity and white supremacy in American history. And, um, you, you know, you can't go wrong by reading um, some of this history. I think reading these works is more, po- more important than
0: ever. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts while you're at it if you enjoyed what you heard we'd appreciate a rating on itunes or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help, too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.